to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. So good news for the audience this week. The book plates have been printed. They said it couldn't be done. Um, <laughs> of course, the next thing that has to happen is the, the book plates have to be inscribed, and then the book plates have to be addressed, and the book plates have to be mailed, and this will happen um, forthwith. And some of you have written to us with particular deadlines for birthdays or whatever, and we'll try to respect those and prioritize them. Others, if you're waiting a little longer, I'm sure you'll understand why. And the good news is that when you insert it into the words that made us, it will be a book that will last a lifetime. So, Andy, I'm very impressed. It's, this podcast has had a, a, a positive effect on you. You're using law words like forthwith. I can't remember the last time I heard that word. <laughs> okay, well, that's I'm gonna soon. I'm gonna graduate to fifth with. And in fact, speaking of fifth, we've been talking about the uh, the Fifth Amendment um, in our in our last podcast, and we've promised to go from uh, the bad guys to the good guys. Last time we talked about how the Fifth Amendment had evolved in uh, a climate that had the need to protect uh, the guilty, um, and that doesn't seem necessary in today's world in, in some sense um seems perverse akil was starting to tell us about how this switch um occurred so i'm going to let him pick up uh, on that at this point here's the conventional view of the fifth amendment to repeat is that it's designed to prevent what's called the cruel trilemma not dilemma but trilemma Cruel trilemma exists because if you forced a criminal defendant to take the stand, it seems, some people say, cruel that either he refuses to talk and you punish him just for his refusal to speak, or he talks and he ends up denying his guilt, but that's a lie, and you punish him for perjury, or he talks and admits that he did it, and that's considered in this cruel trilemma, cruel because you're making him the instrument of his own punishment. And the counter-argument is, well, what's, you're only in that trilemma if you did it, if you're guilty. And so maybe, maybe you, you know, all your options are bad ones because you put yourself in that position by doing something you shouldn't have done in the first place. Now, if the underlying criminal law is bad criminal law because it's a crime to be a Christian in pre-Constantine Rome, or it's a crime to be a critic of the government in England at a certain point or even in America at a certain point. If the substantive criminal law is really problematic, then the Fifth Amendment is actually mitigating some of the injustice of the substantive criminal law. But if at a certain point in America we actually have other provisions of the Constitution that prevent bad criminal laws because we have a, a First Amendment protecting religious freedom and protecting political opposition to the government, and we have other rules limiting improper – we call the, those rules the First Amendment. If we have other rules limiting improper searches and seizures, unreasonable searches and seizures, we call that the Fourth Amendment, and we have still other rules preventing against unduly harsh criminal punishment, an Eighth Amendment prohibiting cruel and unusual punishment, then what purpose does this rule of the Fifth Amendment serve and how should we think about it? 
And just to remind everyone again, the words that we're trying now, we know what the words say, and we have at least a clear idea of what, at a minimum, they mean. But now the question is, why? If we move away from the cruel trilemma, what's our alternative perspective, our alternative big idea, and, and how would that help us decide more edgy cases, more ambiguous cases? But just to remind everyone, we're talking about the language of the Fifth Amendment that says no person, dot, 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 shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. And that's a rule that under the Fifth Amendment applies against federal officialdom, and thanks to the 14th Amendment after Reconstruction has come to apply correctly against state and local governments, a doctrine that we've talked about on many occasions and in the podcast called incorporation. Okay, that's where we left off, and, and I began to tease and, and hint at an alternative vision of the Fifth Amendment. Let's start with the core case. A person can't be forced, a criminal defendant, to take the stand against his will in a criminal case brought against him. Why? Here's a different vision. It's from actually a Supreme Court case, 1893. It's called Wilson versus United States. And here's what the court said. And I agree with this vision. It's going to be in tension with the cruel trilemma vision. And we actually, for various reasons that I'm going to explain, can't really have both. We're going to have to pick. Just like we have to pick in the religion cases, separation or equality because they actually conflicted in certain situations. We're going to actually have to choose the cruel trilemma perspective or the innocence protect, uh, protective perspective. Here's what Wilson versus United States says to repeat. It's the Supreme Court case from the 1890s. It is not everyone who can safely venture on the witness stand, though entirely innocent of the charge against him. Excessive timidity, nervousness when facing others and attempting to explain transactions of a suspicious character and offenses charged against him will often confuse and embarrass him to such a degree as to increase rather than remove prejudices against him. It is not everyone, however honest, who would therefore willingly be placed on the witness stand. Okay, now if that's the idea that we privilege criminal defendants from having to take the stand because they might actually be innocent and yet, and they might be truthful, and yet if forced to take the stand, they would actually hurt their own case with truthful testimony and end up digging their own grave, so to speak, even though they're innocent and even though they're truthful. Well, that's a different theory of the Fifth Amendment, you see. Now, if that's the theory of the, of the Fifth Amendment, Let's now start talking about slightly different hypotheticals and, and how they should be thought about. Okay, you don't force the person to take a stand at trial, but the clever prosecutor says, fine, we'll adjourn the trial. We're going to walk across the street out of earshot of the jury. We're going to force the criminal defendant to answer certain questions. We won't put him under oath, so we're sparing him possible psychic torture and, and, and spiritual condemnation that would occur if he formally committed an oath violation. We won't put him under oath, but we're going to ask him all these questions. And when he starts to answer, we're going to slice and dice him in the same way that we might on the stand. And then and we're going to videotape the thing. And he might sweat and stutter. 
can, but we're going to take a videotape of this whole thing or, or in the old days, a, a transcript. We'll walk back across the street. The trial will recommence, and we're going to show the jury the video. And I think you'd say, gee, if Wilson is right, the same concerns are really applicable. And if you can't force the person to take the stand in his own trial, you can't force him to do this um, across the street in an episode that technically is arguably not within the criminal case. Now let's modify the hypothetical just a little bit more. Okay, this deposition, this interrogation by the clever prosecutor is occurring actually um, in a grand jury proceeding before there's even been an indictment. And I think the answer is going to be the same. You can't actually roll the tape before the jury introduce the affidavit because the same concerns apply. Now we're seeing that you have to be able to take the fifth outside the criminal case in order to protect the values of the Fifth Amendment, if there's ever a criminal case that later materializes. The question now becomes not whether you can take the Fifth outside the criminal case. Yes, you're going to be allowed to in a grand jury proceeding. Maybe even, let's imagine that now a civil case brought by the government or a civil investigation. And remember, we're talking about all this because that's what has happened recently with Donald Trump. There was a civil investigation by a government, the New York state government, Letitia James, asking him questions, and he's allowed to take the Fifth in this civil investigation, even though the Fifth Amendment says in any criminal case. But now we're beginning to see why that's so. He gets to take the Fifth, but now the question is what needs to be excluded from the criminal case in order to protect these Fifth Amendment values that we're beginning to articulate. It's interesting that Letitia James is basically the the New York government and she's asking Donald Trump questions because the most important case in America after the founding and before the Civil War that focused on this issue actually was also from New York. I think it was around 1827 or so. It was a case called People versus Kelly, and we began to talk about it. And in People versus Kelly, the person was asked in the grand jury proceeding. This is a grand jury rather than a civil deposition, but it's, it's similar. It's the, it's the government of New York asking someone you know, very pointed questions. And, and by the way, Donald Trump, and the questions were actually about gambling. Was Kelly a gambler? Gambling used to be illegal. And of course, Donald Trump, it's now legal. He, he's a big casino owner, but, but let's just put that to one side. So Kelly is asked, were you at the gambling table? He says, I take the fifth, the state constitutional version of the fifth. And they say, okay, we immunize you. We're going to talk about what kind of immunity they give him. And they say, now we're at the gambling table and you have to answer. He says, and you're not under, and let's imagine you're not under oath, but, but if you lie, it's still going to be a criminal penalty. He says, okay, was at the gambling table. Okay, who was with you? And he's got to mention who was with them, and then they're going to find those people, and they're going to testify against Kelly in the criminal case because the only immunity that he got under New York law was his words wouldn't be introduced against him. The affidavit wasn't going to be read against him if there were a criminal case, but the words could be used to find leads, what lawyers call fruits, other witnesses, pieces of physical evidence, All of that was fair game. And here was the theory. If his words were never in the grand jury proceeding, were never read against him 
in his criminal prosecution, he will never have been made a witness, against, compelled to be a witness against himself in a criminal case. If he was compelled to be a witness against himself but in a grand jury proceeding, and as long as his witnessing was never introduced directly in his criminal case, he was never made to be a witness against himself in a criminal case, even though that grand jury, those grand jury words led to other fruit that did get introduced, other witnesses, physical evidence. You know, suppose they had said, where did you put your winnings? He said, well, they're in this vault or something. And then they open up the vault and find his fingerprints on his winnings or something. But the claim is under the rule in New York and People versus Kelly, the only immunity you get is basically testimonial immunity. The only thing that's excluded is his words themselves. And that fits the narrow idea of innocence protection in the Wilson, the later Wilson case, because the jury isn't being shown that he sweats and stutters. And, 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 and if he ends up getting convicted, it's because he really was guilty based on reliable evidence that, yes, they found because they were interrogating him, but it was reliable. Other witnesses, physical evidence, his fingerprints on his gambling winnings or what have you. So it sounds like um, you, know, you earlier said that in our last episode, you talked about you know, motivations behind the Fifth Amendment uh, originally to protect from bad laws, later to protect from things that now are being protected by the First Amendment, by the Fourth Amendment, to protect uh, political speech, to protect, you know, and so forth. Now that those protections are not necessary under the Fifth Amendment, well, what's being protected? Now, it seems like ultimately now this is about truth-seeking, Yes. It's about reliability of evidence. And yes. it seems to be taking a position that testimonial evidence, specifically testimonial evidence about yourself, um, is particularly unreliable. And, yes. and, and that unreliability is particularly unfair um, when you're the person that's on trial. Yes, because, you know, you're maybe more than usually likely to, to be very nervous, maybe to look guilty even though you're not and your eyes dart back and forth and again you sweat and stutter and all the rest because you're in a tough spot you know much more so than if you're just a plaintiff or a defendant in a civil case or a witness in someone else's criminal case now just to remind the audience of another thing that we talked about last week and then we'll move forward and i'll tell you how this theory answers a whole bunch of questions that we uh, opened our last episode with about all sorts of other edge cases like can corporations take the fifth and what about taking someone's blood and what about drawing adverse inferences against a person who takes the fifth and all sorts of other things we're going to actually talk about once we have the big idea and the theory but just to remind everyone after people v kelly which was a state case from the 1820s that rule in people versus kelly was actually copied in a whole bunch of other states. Remember, states have constitutions and they have provisions that look like the, the Fifth Amendment. During the Civil War, Congress enacts a statute that says when you're forced to testify before Congress, you, you can be forced to, to speak if given an immunity, and the only immunity you get is People v. Kelly immunity, testimonial immunity. Your words which you are obliged to provide to Congress when it's questioning you in some oversight hearing, some interrogation, 
Your words will never be read against you, introduced against you in a later criminal case brought against you. But anything that your words lead to are fair game, what lawyers call fruits. So in particular, just to remind everyone, that was a situation in which someone apparently money was missing from a, a federal office and an investigation was open, a congressional investigation. They, they interrogate the clerks and they say, what happened to the money? And they say, we take the fifth. And they said, you know, you're immunized. They said, oh, we stole it. And the statute at the time initially said, congressional statute, once you're immunized, you can never be prosecuted. Congress thought that was way too nice to embezzlers, to, to crooks. So they say from now on, an 1862 statute, the only you, you have to talk when Congress asks you questions, but the only immunity you get is testimonial immunity. And, and we get to ask you questions, and you're going to have to tell us who else saw you do it and where the money is and where we can find it and all the rest. And we can introduce all the fruits against you because they're reliable. The only thing we can't introduce against you are your words themselves. Now, Abraham Lincoln signs that bill into law knowing that, you know, that's what he's agreeing to. And that is, and that's in 1862, very shortly after that, Congress proposes a 14th Amendment that says states are going to have to abide by self-incrimination rules, just like the federal government does. But they have a certain narrower idea about self-incrimination than maybe some folks had at the founding. We've got a People versus Kelly idea of what the words of the Fifth Amendment really mean and why. This gets back to that idea that you've been espousing in recent episodes, that the um, that something can mean something different at the time of the 14th Amendment than it did at the founding, and the 14th Amendment can therefore, can therefore make that the law of the land. Yes, because it's an amendment. And sometimes, as a result of the 14th Amendment, we may have a broader understanding of the right against both states and the federal government than was understood at the founding. Sometimes a narrow understanding. Amendments can go either way, but in the Bruin case, the, the New York uh, rifle case, the gun case from New York, Justice Thomas writes an opinion saying, oh, there are scholars that say if we're thinking about the Bill of Rights, we have to think about the 1860s and not just the 1790s if we're good originalists. Because in the 1860s, the Bill of Rights was reconceptualized and applied against the states. And Amy Coney Barrett says that's an interesting question. And I, I actually was the person, one of the two people in Bruin cited at just that point for just this proposition. And now the audience is seeing why it might matter in the context of the Fifth Amendment. We're going to come back to Donald Trump soon enough here. But yes, Abraham Lincoln was a People versus Kelly guy. He thought that all you were entitled to is testimonial immunity, and that's what the Civil War Congress thought, and that's pretty close to the same Congress that's actually going to propose the 14th Amendment. And so if in Dobbs, for example, the court says, gee, at the time of the 14th Amendment, here were the abortion rules on the books in most states, and most states actually prohibited abortion, so it'd be odd to think the 14th Amendment made all those laws unconstitutional. Gee, at the very time the 14th Amendment is being adopted, everyone knows about this 1862 law, and that's the understanding that they have of the compelled self-incrimination idea. So that should be the understanding going forward. If you're a Dobbs person, you see, a, a Bruin person, 
But the Supreme Court comes along later on in the 1890s. It said sensible things in this Wilson case that I quoted from 1893, but it said not very sensible things in another case called Councilman versus Hitchcock, in which they invalidated that congressional statute from 1862. They said if Congress wants to force people to talk at congressional hearings, it has to absolutely immunize them from any criminal prosecu- federal criminal prosecution whatsoever. They are entitled to, quote, total transactional immunity. For anything that you testify about, you can never be prosecuted. And here's the question. Where does that come from and why? Because the words of the Fifth Amendment read narrowly, people, a la People versus Kelly, a la the 1862 statute, don't require that. Yes, you were forced to testify, but not in a criminal case, rather in a congressional hearing. And there maybe was no criminal case on the, you know, that had been initiated at that point. And when there is a criminal case, as long as your words aren't introduced against you to repeat from a certain point of view, you will never ever have been compelled to be a witness against yourself in a criminal case. And here's the final point. That's perfectly right and fair if it's about protecting innocent people from erroneous conviction rather than guilty people as such. But Councilman says otherwise. It has this broader idea of transactional immunity, and but it doesn't quite explain where that comes from. And still later, the court's going to modify Councilman. This is in the, the Warren Burger Court era, a case called Castigar. It's actually the Burger Court. And it's going to say, no, Councilman went too far. If you're forced to testify before Congress and you're given a certain immunity, it's permissible to have a subsequent criminal prosecution against you for the very issues that you were testifying about so long as your wor- your congressional testimony is excluded, the one that was compelled, and any fruits that come from that congressional testimony, okay? So now you can be prosecuted. It's not total transactional immunity, but the government's going to have to prove that everything in the prosecution was completely independent of that congressional testimony, that, that, that the words are excluded, the words you uttered in the, your congressional testimony, but also any fruits from that. And the question is, okay, fine, you can say that Supreme Court, you can, you know, you can say anything, but where does that come from? Because the words of the fourth, the Fifth Amendment don't require that in any way. They require the exclusion of the words, that's the witnessing, but why the fruits? Why not go, if we're rethinking councilmen, go all the way back to the 1862 rule and the People versus Kelly rule? So, Now, Andy, just to, and I know you're going to jump in here, but just to kind of clarify the three options that we have. The question is, when you're forced to testify outside of your own criminal case, in a civil deposition, in a grand jury, in congressional testimony, what immunity do we have to give you in those situations? Or put slightly differently, what has to be excluded from the criminal case? Possibility one, the narrowest thing. Your words are excluded, but nothing else. That's called testimonial immunity. That's the People v. Kelly rule. That's the 1862 rule. Possibility two, Castigar, 1972. Your words plus fruits, sometimes called use plus use fruits immunity. That's what needs to be excluded from the criminal case. Possibility three, 
councilman. The entire criminal case has to be excluded. We just can never prosecute you for anything that you testified about. Three possibilities. I picked the narrowest one because it best fits the words of the Fifth Amendment, which is only about witnessing, and it, it, it doesn't provide needless protection for guilty people. We're going to come back to that because the broader the immunity that you have, under the Fifth Amendment, the more problems you're going to create for the system in all sorts of other situations, which I'll explain. I mean, sometimes we think of these things in terms of trade-offs, you know, that we're, well, yes, we're, we're giving more protection to, potentially to someone that's guilty, but we're gaining something uh, in, in return. And it seems like that would have to be the case in order for, for the, these modifications by the Supreme Court to, to make any sense. So from the from the court's point of view, what did they feel they were gaining by extending this level of protection to people that are actually guilty? Avoiding the cruel trilemma of obliging people to participate in their own punishment, to, to harm themselves, to dig their own graves. And I'm saying, if you're guilty, that's not so cruel. You shouldn't have embezzled. Maybe you know? so, but... but uh, but nevertheless, you may not feel it's cruel, but somehow it seems like that's in part of some sort of ethos or some, some character of the United States uh, legal system or the United States Constitution or the United States as a, as a people that we um, want to err on the side of not uh, you know, forcing people to, to do this. And why is that? What, what, is, the, what is really the the fundamental protection there. It's, you know, the way you explain it, it seems stupid, frankly. Uh, and, and frankly, this is an era in which the court is stupid in all sorts of other cases. This is the same decade that gives us Plessy versus Ferguson, which Dobbs describes as egregiously wrong, and Dobbs is right about that. It ignores the word equal. It's the same decade that gives us the Pollock case, which overreads the idea of direct tax, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And now this is the third one, Councilman, building on another case that's also been deemed egregiously wrong, a case called Boyd that I'm not going to talk about in great detail, 1886, I, I think, in which the Fourth Amendment and the Fifth Amendment kind of get smushed together. So this was an era in which the court said, I would say, a bunch of stupid things. Now, I do believe that in order to protect innocent people from erroneous conviction, sometimes guilty people are going to go free. A lot of guilty people. I have no problem with that. That's the proof beyond reasonable doubt idea that if there's any question at all about whether someone really is guilty, we'd rather that a guilty person, lots of guilty people go free, than an innocent person is erroneously convicted. And that's why I say we have proof beyond reasonable doubt, and that's why we have the narrow testimonial immunity rule, because maybe someone's innocent, but they'll look guilty because they sweat, stutter, and get interrupted by the prosecutor and all the rest. But that's no good reason to exclude reliable evidence that's otherwise trustworthy. Another witness that we learn about because from the defendant, but that other witness is actually reliable or physical evidence. We're going to come to physical evidence soon enough when we talk about blood and DNA and fingerprinting and all sorts of other stuff. When the only way that we can actually really reduce both the number of erroneous acquittals and erroneous convictions, if we want to reduce both simultaneously, 
the, the only way we can really do that, systems analysts will, will tell us, this is what's sometimes called type 1 and type 2 errors, false negatives and false positives. The only way you can reduce both of those simultaneously is to bring more reliable information into a system. You, by shifting the burden of proof, we can actually we can make it nearly impossible to, that there's going to be an innocent person erroneously convicted if we said not just proof beyond reasonable doubt, but proof to a moral certainty, proof that 99.999% likely to be correct or something like that. We could shift that line and we'd, we'd be protecting innocent people from erroneous conviction, but only by letting more guilty people go free because they're probably guilty, but not by a 99.999% likelihood. But if we want to actually protect innocent people, but also reduce the number of guilty people who just get windfalls from the system, who, who walk free, we do that by bringing more reliable information to the system, more fruit. And, and that's why Castigar is wrong, because it's excluding not just possibly unreliable defense testimony, but reliable physical evidence and other evidence, fruit. Um, and that goes too, too far. So, but let me just, Andy, say one other thing since I'm saying, yeah, I think the court is not very impressive in this era. It's, On the other it's, hand, you have Wilson then, which you, which you like. Yes, and I'm saying you have to choose between, and this is often the case in law. The court doesn't always say stupid things all the time, but we're going to have to choose between the Wilson vision and the councilman vision. But what I am saying is councilman, I think, gets it wrong, and Plessy gets it wrong, and Pollock gets it wrong, all in the same decade. And here's a really interesting point. My man Abraham Lincoln is three for three. He believes in equality. He definitely does. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicates the proposition that all men are created equal. And that's going to be his idea that becomes the 14th Amendment, equality idea. So he's right, as is John Marshall Harlan in dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson, and Plessy's wrong, egregiously wrong. And he's right, he signs his name to an income tax, and the Pollock case invalidates you know, federal income tax. And once again, John Marshall Harlan is, is in dissent in that. And that was egregiously wrong. And the people overturn it with the 16th Amendment. And that's what we talked about in the Hileton episode. And now here in Councilman, he was right. Lincoln was. He signed that 1862 bill into law, understanding exactly what it did and why, because it was talked about on the, the, uh, the congressional floor by people, among others, including his, his good friend, from Illinois, Senator Lyman Trumbull, he signs that into law, and Councilman goofs. So it's interesting. Lincoln's basically three for three, and the court is zero for three on that. But I'm building on other things that the court has said that make more sense. I'd just like to to summarize some of the ways I'm thinking about this as a as a layman. There are a number of things here that we've discussed in recent weeks that tend to result in more, shall we say, more acquittals. So there's, you just talked about the reasonable doubt standard. Okay, fine. And that, and you believe in that. We've also talked about the, the exclusionary rule. And I'm against that because it doesn't protect innocent people at all. It protects only the guilty as such. Whereas proof beyond reasonable doubt does protect guilty people, but only as an unavoidable byproduct of protecting innocent people from the possibility of erroneous conviction. Right. So in other words, you know, we've got some, 
a whole bunch of things, the, the exclusionary rule, the, this conception of the Fifth Amendment as, as uh, banning any fruits of testimony. Um, we've got the, as I said, the reasonable doubt standard. Um, so, so as Americans, we tend to, I think, lump these things together and saying, okay, we're a noble nation. We are willing to allow guilty people to go free and here's all the, you know, to protect the innocent. And here's all these examples of, of how, but now your analysis has shown that actually the way to convict the guilty and acquit the innocent is in part to increase the reliability of the information that is presented to the jury while still maintaining a certain standard that allows us to make fewer errors. Brilliant. And I'm saying that we're throwing out too much good fruit. And the word fruit is a Fourth Amendment exclusionary rule word, like fruit of the poisonous tree. And it's a Fifth Amendment word about castigar immunity rather than people versus Kelly testimonial immunity. And now let's actually talk just so our audience sees just why you're going to have to choose between these visions, the innocence protection and the guilt protection visions. Let's talk about blood. Let's talk about a case called Schmerber. It's 1965. It's actually 5-4 when it's decided, though today I would hope it would be close to 9-0. Here's the question. And we opened up some of these parentheses in our last chapter, in our last episode, and now we're beginning to close them one by one because once we've got the idea, we can actually answer some of the questions because the words of the Fifth Amendment could be read different ways. The word witness, person, compelled in any criminal case, but I'm going to give you now reasons why we should read them one way rather than a different way. So the question in Schmerber is, can the government, to repeat, grab my arm? There's been an accident, let's imagine, and I'm suspected of drunk driving. And let's imagine that someone was injured, some other person, some innocent person. Now, am I guilty of drunk driving? The government grabs my arm sticks a needle in my vein, pulls out my blood to prove that I have drugs in my blood or alcohol in my blood. Let's imagine it's it's not just a drunk driving or driving under the influence situation. Let's imagine it's a murder and the government wants to grab my arm and stick a needle in it and pull out my blood in order to prove that my blood matches the blood on the bloody knife at the crime scene, ABDO blood match, or even now with modern technology, it's a DNA match. Is that a violation of the Fifth Amendment when the government, in effect, compels me to give a blood sample? Now, if you say, I can never be made an instrument of my own punishment, the government can't use me to dig my own grave that's cruel to force me to, you know, in any way participate in my own punishment. If you're a cruel trilemma person, you might say, oh, yeah, the blood should not be introduced. But if you're an innocence protection person who's worried about stuttering and sweating and all the rest and erroneous conviction of someone who's actually innocent. You say, oh my God, blood is like the, the gold standard. It's, it's very, very reliable evidence of DNA match, ABDO match, drugs in the bloodstream, uh, alcohol in the bloodstream. And you'd say, let it in. The technical question that we're asking, the 
dictionary question is, you know, is this witnessing? And Scalia might just, you know, look at a dictionary or something for the word witness. I'm saying that's the wrong place to look. That's not really going to tell you what you need to know. You're going to need to know why we have the rule in the first place. And if we have the rule for Wilson-like reasons, we should say, as the Schmerber court did say, blood comes in. It's not a violation of the Fifth Amendment to force me to hand over my own blood. You've talked about the uh, conflation of the Fourth and Fifth Amendments at times. Of course, this is also a search. Yes, and a seizure. They're seizing my body parts. Right. You know, is the right of the people to be secure against unreasonable, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. So Schmerber actually has to ask, was this a reasonable seizure of my person? And did this violate the Fifth Amendment? And the court actually said, it was reasonable under Fourth Amendment and not a Fifth Amendment violation. And by the way, okay, not only are they now going to be able to convict more guilty people, but because of cases like Schmerber, we're going to be actually helping innocent people too because Schmerber is going to lead to a whole industry building on what once was science fiction, Sherlock Holmes. I think it's the first Sherlock Holmes story is all about sort of he's got done study of cigar ash and other things. But but he, Sherlock, Arthur Conan Doyle is talking about what will become modern forensic science. We're going to be able to prove scientifically and reliability what really happened and what didn't. And because of DNA, we're going to sometimes be able to not just convict guilty people, but with the rape kits and all the rest, we'll find the DNA of the rapist. But we're also going to be able, much more broader uses of DNA, all of which is created by the Schmerber case, we're going to be able to exonerate innocent people who are today wrongly convicted. If as someone's been erroneously convicted and we finally test the rape kit and it shows that it's not the DNA of the person convicted, the prosecutor will say, oh, well, maybe there were two people. That isn't fully exonerating. But if I can use the DNA to actually find the person who really did it, and that person looks like the, the person who's convicted, but they didn't know each other, and they were never in the same room together, and it wasn't actually that they were partnering up, oh, Innocent people are going to go free because of Schmerber and DNA because I'm bringing more reliable information, fruits, into the system. Of course, so, it could get even more interesting, not to get off the subject too much, but because this is conflates the fourth and the fifth, I think it's interesting that under your formulation, even if the search were unreasonable, it wouldn't be suppressed because there were no, because you would not believe in the exclusionary rule. Correct. Correct. So, so this and, Fifth Amendment, you know, whether or not it's, you know, so so it's allowed under Schmerber because it's it's not witnessing against yourself, and even if it were an unreasonable search in the first place or seizure in the first place, it would still be allowed. You might just be a, able to sue the person that stuck the needle in your arm for, you know, battery or something like that. <laughs> We're, and we're going to talk more about the Fourth Amendment in further episodes, but you're absolutely right, Andy, in seeing these interesting connections. Let me now, because there's slightly different theories about Schmerber's correctness. And just to repeat, Schmerber back then was five to four. And today, it's like impossible to imagine police practices without using blood and DNA and all this stuff in, in every civilized country, not just the United States, around the world. Now, here were various theories. One theory was, oh, 
it's not witnessing because and witnessing is about words and words are unreliable and blood is reliable. That's kind of my theory. And judges do say that. But here were other theories that were out there. No, it's not really witnessing against yourself because the human will of the defendant is not being used against him. I'm not really participating in this so much. The government's just grabbing my arm. And they're not really kind of asking me to, to cooperate in any way. Sometimes the people who made this argument used the corpse test. Blood could be drawn from a corpse. Fingerprints can be taken from a corpse. So I'm not really consenting to give them my fingerprint, which is a match, but they're just grabbing my hand and fingerprinting it. Murder isn't just about blood. It's about things like fingerprinting. Is that forcing someone to be a witness against themselves, to hand over their thumb for a thumbprint? You can say, well, it's, you're not really asking them to hand over. You're just a hand over their thumb. You're just grabbing it. Okay, but now back to Donald Trump. Donald Trump was asked to give his name. And he did, forced to give his name. And, and he gave it. Now, he gave it for a couple of reasons because he can't not say his name. He's, that's what he's very good at saying. You know, he's very good, Donald Trump, at saying Donald Trump. But it's also because court doctrine, very well established, is that the criminal defendant can be obliged to give his name. But why is that? Why isn't that witnessing against yourself? And, and that is involving human will and agency because you can't get a dead corpse to give its name. I gave you some other examples from Law and Order episodes. We force criminal defendants or even suspects before they've been indicted to participate in a lineup to, and to wear a certain shirt or blouse. Okay, fine, but maybe you could put a blouse or a shirt on a, on a corpse. But we also force them to utter words. You can be forced to say, not just your name, but stick them up just the way that the actual criminal did in the bank, or I'm going to kill you tomorrow in, in some prosecution for a murderous phone threat. That is involving the human will, okay? And, and it would show consciousness of guilt if someone tried to mask their voice, which sometimes happens. But voice, mandatory voice exemplars are permitted under Schmerber, just as blood tests are and fingerprint tests are. Doctrine it's already moving, you see, toward the um, innocence protection idea in certain respects. I mean, these um, all seem to be consistent with the big idea of reliability of evidence. Yes, yes. As long as what, as long as what is being extracted is reliable, unlike witness testimony about yourself, um, but your blood, you know, either the test is reliable or it's not. It's a scientific question, not a... You know, not a not a personal question in a sense. And know. the voice. Let's take the voice exemplar because, at least in some law and order episodes, let's imagine actually that the phone threat was recorded, and now we're actually going to match your voice. You have to give a voice exemplar, and we'll match actually the scientific profile of your voice with the voice of the perpetrator. Or if if the bank actually had a recording system, we're going to match your voice saying "stick them up" with the recording in the bank itself. That's sort of reliable scientific evidence and you know, permissible under Schmerber. Although sometimes, you know, you want, one wonders about reliability, right? In the 19th century, they thought they could tell a lot about you from the shape of your head, you know, a phrenology, and, and, you know, stuff and, like that. 
for a brief nanosecond, a very distinguished judge, Lou Pollock, former South Bay professor at Yale Law School, former dean of the Yale Law School, and, and our audience knows what South Bay professorship um, is all about. Federal district judge, very distinguished federal judge. I almost clerked for, for him. For a brief moment, he actually declared fingerprint evidence impermissible because thought that there were you know, enough doubts about scientific reliability. I don't he, think he's wrong, actually, but now we've got much better stuff than fingerprints. Well, in fingerprinting, sometimes this can be a bit of an art, not a science, and now you're talking about a five-point match, a mm-hmm. seven-point nine-point match. We won't get into all of that. What we, for, for present purposes, one puzzle that I asked was, is the Fifth Amendment violated you know, when we take your blood? Answer, no. And it's not just because we could get blood from a corpse, because doctrine says we can force you to give a voice exemplar. And doctrine says we can force you to say your name, and that's involving your consciousness, your will, your mind. You can't get those things from a corpse. Okay, so that was one set of questions we talked about. Well, here was another set of questions we talked about. Because once you have the idea, you can begin to answer these puzzles because, to repeat, the words themselves aren't self-defining. Person, witness, compelled, criminal case. So let's talk about person. Can corporations take the fifth? Can the Trump organization, if it's a corporation, take the fifth? And and Donald Trump as a person gets to take the fifth, but the Trump corporation doesn't. There are a couple of theories why. One, because all the way back for hundreds of years, one concern was about spiritual torment and damning one's immortal soul by saying something false under oath. And if that is at all a concern, it doesn't really apply to corporations because, and this is, I'm just being very technical, they don't have souls. And if that's the concern for human beings, natural human beings, you can say, okay, it's not under oath anymore. But, and we've, which is, but we've kind of dismissed that. I mean, um, so now, I think, you know, because, okay. because the cruel trilemma, yeah. you know, you, you're inducing guilty people to lie um, yep. by putting them on the stand, and you're saying, well, you know, that's okay. Um, you know, you, you're inducing them to lie even if you're not, uh, you know, doing it in court. You're right, but the, the, the case law is very consistent and, and very old. This comes from actually even the councilman era. In a case called, Andy, Hale versus Henkel, 1906, The court says, while an individual may lawfully refuse to answer incriminating questions unless protected by an immunity statute, it does not follow that a corporation may refuse to show its hand when charged with an abuse. Okay, now, again, one theory is corporations don't have souls, but that's kind of the old cruel trilemma theory. A different theory is if we're really worried about the the kind of unfairness about a possibly innocent defendant being erroneously convicted and then maybe actually losing his life or many years of his liberty, that's not as much of a concern with a corporation. Now, it is true that corporations can technically be criminal defendants, and it's further true that there can even be a kind of death penalty of sorts for the corporation, but the death penalty for the corporation, so to speak, is just dissolving the corporation. It's not actually putting a natural person to death. So... Maybe we're just less worried about protecting corporations than we are protecting natural persons. Well, I think, you know, also, again, if we go back to this idea of reliability, um, 
you know, when one testifies, one has once, you know, one's life in one's hand and so forth. And there's, you know, a lot of questions about reliability, but a corporation can't really testify. It's someone is testifying on behalf of the corporation. So they, that person's own liberty is not, is to the degree that it's at stake, it's at stake if he lies, because then he can be tried for perjury. Yeah. But, but the Maybe individual uh, speaking for the corporation, you know, is not, does not have the same thing at stake that the individual has speaking for himself. Excellent point, and maybe is less likely, therefore, to be you know hyper nervous and stutter and sweat and all the rest. The motivations are different; they're it's lined clear. up more towards telling the truth than they are for an individual that might be guilty that's testifying, right. or and even then, that's innocent. And you know, question whether that's the same thing if it's a closely held corporation. You know, whether, whether there's one person who's the only shareholder. And okay, corporations. Well, that was one of the questions. Are they persons? And the answer is. No, and that turns out to be no, whether we have the cruel trilemma theory, which is more about protecting the guilty or the innocence protection theory. So either way, corporations maybe don't qualify for the special tenderness given natural persons under Fifth Amendment self-incrimination doctrine. Yeah, I have okay. to say, though, that I don't think that answer is, is as, as clear it's, you know, as, as some of the others. This is a question I think perhaps you know, is, is still open. As okay. to exactly why it would not apply to it. I don't quite, you know, buy it, to tell you the truth. The court's approach to corporations, Andy, you're right. It, it, it can be challenged. Wherever possible, I'm going to actually try to defend existing doctrine. If it's defensible, I think it's plausible what the court has done on corporations. So I'm not sure my answer on, on that one is perfect, but at least I can understand where the court is coming from. And indeed, they're two different pathways to the existing doctrinal rule, which is absolutely clear, core Fifth Amendment doctrine today, to repeat that corporations can't invoke the Fifth. Okay. What about, Andy, I'll just get your intuition, what counts as compulsion, Andy, in a criminal case? If someone refuses to take the stand, should the jury be allowed to basically hold it against him, in legal terminology, draw an adverse inference against him, and basically say, we're not compelling him to take the stand, but we're less likely to buy the defense story if the defendant doesn't take the stand. Is that permissible or not? Well, it seems like it should not be, because in, in effect, you know, the, you're saying, well, let's assume for a moment that you're a person that when you take the stand, you'll create a bad impression. Yep. Okay, but you're innocent. Correct. Okay, so now you have no good choices. Either, Correct. Either you take the stand and you have this bad impression, or you don't take the stand and you have a negative inference, but you're innocent. So, right. So, so you shouldn't be put in that position. And that's what doctrine says today following Wilson, and there are at least three possibilities of how we protect it. One is the judge doesn't tell the jury and you're not, the judge isn't allowed to tell the jury, you can draw an inference against the defense. So surely that's unconstitutional. If the judge told the jury, you're allowed to basically draw an inference against the defendant. Suppose actually the judge were merely silent. You might say, well, the jury doesn't know all the rules and, and it's probably going to, because it doesn't know why, you know, someone it may not understand the Wilson idea because this is a very legalistic point about how the legal system works and juries may not know all that. 
So mere silence isn't going to be enough be, uh, on the part of the judge because the jury will end up drawing the inference anyway. So now we say, oh, the judge should affirmatively instruct the jury not to draw an adverse inference. And that's what doctrine tends to say today, at least if the defendant wants such an instruction, the judge is obliged to give it. But Andy, you and I probably think that's not enough. Mm-hmm. The judge should actually say, you're not allowed to draw an inference. And here's why. Because, the, and, and read then the language from Wilson, even though the defendant might very well be innocent, there are lots of reasons why he might not want to take the stand. I think we would say, if you understand the Wilson rationale, judges should actually uh, take one further step and tell the jury why they shouldn't be drawing an adverse inference in the criminal case. But now, what about an adverse inference if you take the fifth, so to speak, outside a criminal case, in a civil deposition, in a grand jury, in a, in a lawsuit, a civil suit, either brought by the government or brought by a private individual against you? Should the jury be allowed to draw an adverse inference in that civil context? This is a little trickier. Doctrine says if you're a civil defendant and you're sued, let's say, by a private person and you refuse to take the stand, okay, we won't force you to, but the jury is entitled to hold that against you in the civil case and that may help the civil plaintiff. And one of the reasons that we can't force you to take the stand is if we did, if the judge did somehow force you to take the stand, we'd have all these problems about making it difficult for the government later on to sue you criminally because of fruits immunity and castigar and all the rest. So we're not going to force you to take the stand, but the jury can draw whatever inference it wants. And here's why that's okay, because your life's not at stake, because we don't care as much about the possibility you'd be erroneously held liable, even if innocent of the civil complaint against you. We just, we don't have proof beyond reasonable doubt, you see, in a civil case. So we're just much less worried about erroneous verdicts against civil defendants than we are against erroneous verdicts against criminal defendants. So for some of the very same reasons, it's just a more likely than not proof standard in a civil case as opposed to proof beyond reasonable doubt. Juries can draw civil juries adverse inferences against a civil defendant who takes the fifth. Of course, with Donald Trump, it wasn't actually yet a civil lawsuit, but just a deposition. But if there were ever a civil lawsuit brought, he can take the fifth and the jury can hold it against him. And since a jury can hold it against him, if a, a private civil litigant brings a suit against Donald Trump, same thing will be true even if the government is the civil plaintiff against Donald Trump. Adverse inference can indeed be drawn against Trump and in favor of the plaintiff when my new hypothetical is the government itself. Okay? So, you know, that set of... But to repeat, in the criminal case, no adverse inference. What about in a grand jury? The grand jury is entitled to think that you're more likely guilty if you refuse to tell your story before the grand jury. But that's because technically it's not yet a criminal case. They're deciding whether to initiate a criminal case. And they're not even bound by rules of evidence. And they're not even finding that you have to be guilty beyond reasonable doubt. It's just 
more like probable cause, you know, suffices to indict. But can the uh, but but can the fact that you now most defendants don't testify before the grand jury, correct? And the fact that you take the fifth to to refuse to testify before the grand jury, can that fact be introduced at your criminal trial? No, for the reasons that we just talked about, because there's stri- there are rules of evidence in the criminal trial itself, but not in the grand jury. Okay, so Andy, we've talked about what's a person. We've talked about what counts as compulsion. We've talked about what counts as witnessing. And we've talked about um, what's a criminal case and what's not a criminal case. So now I'd like to explore, if we could, you know, you've established that you believe that this, the current structure of the self-incrimination doctrine is suboptimal for the various reasons that we've said. But what kind of effects has it had on the system um, beyond, if any, beyond the the obvious uh, negative effect of having guilty people walk free. So here we, I, I'm going to try to show that it's just it's, it's a tiny little clause. It's 15 words, but you get these 15 words wrong, and and actually, because the Constitution is a system, all sorts of large consequences far afield in other parts of the system get mangled. Just like if you have too broad a conception of a direct tax, you're really going to make it difficult for the federal government to fund an army at the founding. If you have too broad an idea of unenumerated rights, substantive due process, without any kind of rules, you can trigger a civil war, Dred Scott. Here's the biggest problem today with self-incrimination. It's back to the issue of congressional oversight in the 1860s triggered the statute that Abe Lincoln signed into law. Today, Congress is trying to conduct some really important oversight hearings about what people in Trump world knew and didn't know and did and didn't do in connection with the January 6th insurrection and the storming of the Capitol and related incidents and trying to pressure Pence and, uh, and others into breaking the rules for presidential replenishment. Here's the problem. If Congress, which is, this is so important, Congress is doing its job trying to find out what the facts actually are and what new laws, if any, need to be adopted once we find out you know, what happened and didn't happen in January of 2021. Right now, all sorts of people get to take the fifth in this congressional hearing. Even though it's outside a criminal case, they get to take the fifth. And if Congress wants to get to the bottom of things, it has to give them castigar immunity. And if it gives them castigar immunity, that's going to make it very difficult for the Justice Department and Merrick Garland to convict them, even if they're guilty as all get out, because Merrick Garland and the Justice Department in any subsequent criminal prosecution are going to have to prove that every single piece of evidence, every single witness, every single aspect of the prosecution was utterly independent of the compelled testimony. And that's going to be a hard thing to prove. Oliver North committed all sorts of crimes. Congress wanted to get to the bottom of that. He and the government. It forced him to testify. It had to immunize him. 
And then when a subsequent criminal case was brought against him, he was convicted, but on appeal, the conviction got thrown out by the D.C. Circuit on Castigar grounds because he couldn't prove, for example, that every single witness who testified against North was utterly unaffected by his testimony because his testimony was nationally televised. And some of the people who testified against North had their refresh recollections refreshed by watching the TV thing, so that uh, the TV hearings, so the government couldn't prove that every single element of the prosecution was utterly unfruity, was in no way a consequence of the compelled testimony. So now we're seeing this seemingly teeny tiny technical rule of criminal procedure is screwing up the most basic function of Congress, which is to have oversight hearings over the executive branch when there's serious misconduct. Wow. And none of that would be true, Andy, if Amar's rule were in place, Lyman Trumbull's rule, Abraham Lincoln's rule, because if those rules were in place, person would take the fifth and Congress would say, you're hereby immunized, but all that means is your words won't be read against you the Justice Department won't be compromised in any way whatsoever because those words wouldn't even exist, you know, if, if we didn't have this hearing. But they're not worse off than they would be. And we can force you to tell us who was your partner in crime, who was there, where the physical evidence is, and all the rest. Now, Andy, you know that Congress uh, actually doesn't just hold oversight hearings involving executive misconduct because who are both Godfather fans, and of course, in, in two, as Tony Soprani would say, there were congressional hearings involving the Corleone family. Yes, and, and which were, the, you know, uh, a fictionalized account of the Kefauver hearings, which actually exactly, did take place. Exactly so. But we, but we digress, because important as those were, even more important when Congress is holding oversight hearings about executive branch misconduct. Which I don't know if there's anything more important than the Godfather. <laughs> which to repeat this little rule seemingly the, all these technical things that are obsessing Akhil about the, the scope of immunity under the Fifth Amendment is messing up Congress's core function which is to, to monitor the um, executive branch misconduct to publicize it to the world and if necessary to, to legislate against the abuses found so that they won't happen again. Don't you think though that the people that that now are taking the fifth if they were forced to testify and they're, they know it's going to you know, be the fruits of their testimony will result in you know, incrimination towards them. Don't, th don't you think they'll, eat, they'll just lie or they'll just refuse to answer, even well, though they, they don't have the right to refuse to answer? If they refuse to answer, they can be put in the pokey. Um, that's but only until the end of that session of Congress, right? Well, there are actually two different kinds of contempt rules. Congress can hold them itself in the in a dungeon in Congress until the end of the session. But that there's also a thing called criminal contempt in which, and that's Steve Bannon, and and then he can, he you know he I think was sentenced in two separate counts, and each one was a year of imprisonment, um, regardless of when this session of Congress ends. So that's point one. Point two is if they actually don't pull a Bannon, which is just refuse to testify, but actually lie, then we've got them under. 18 U.S.C. 1001, the False Statements Act, and that's often easier to prove than some of the, their other underlying crimes. That's the Martha Stewart issue that we talked about last episode. That sometimes it's going to be easier to prove that someone lied than that they committed some other underlying transaction, uh, underlying offense.
you know, it seems like Congress is pretty reluctant to go that far. Um, now, of course, we don't have that system now, but we, but just observing the hearings, they seem reluctant to even issue a subpoena in the first place. You know, they just say, oh, please come testify. And then maybe now and then they'll issue a subpoena. And then someone, you know, tries to quash the subpoena and then they fail. And then they, maybe they show up and then they say, well, executive privilege. And then they say, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say anything because of the, you know, so it's pretty hard to, uh, to get anywhere with the, it seems to me, with a lot of these witnesses. I'm not sure that this would make the difference. Um, maybe not, but I don't think it's helpful. And I think at the margins, it's harmful. Um, and all I can say, Andy, is you might be right, but I got Abraham Lincoln on my side. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. And so, okay. With Andy, with Andy, Abraham Lincoln is always, I'm just, this is an aside to the audience. With Andy, Abraham Lincoln is always the trump card, the yes. ace Page. So, yes. you know, Godfather references and, and Abraham Lincoln, and I've got Andy eating out of the palm of my hand. Yeah, but on the other hand, you use the phrase trump card, so that goes the other way. The ace of spades. <laughs> okay. So, all right. So um, are there any other ways that this has impacted on the, the system as a whole? You talked about congressional investigations. Um, there's other types of investigations that are going on. For example, in... In uh, Georgia, we have um, election investigations. Um, is that complicated by all this? Yes, because if a state pushes someone to actually give evidence and they're forced to give evidence, now actually in the federal prosecution under Castigar, the federal prosecution that might ensue is going to have to uh, show that nothing in, in that prosecution was in any way fruity of the state inquiry and so states actually today can sometimes unfortunately prejudice uh, federal prosecutions in the same way that congressional oversight could prejudice federal prosecutions so all of that's bad um, i'm not going to go into all the details we're going to put on the website an article the article fifth amendment first principles this is a case called murphy from the 1960s, overbroad self-incrimination doctrine is screwing up both separation of powers, congressional oversight of the executive branch, and federalism. It sometimes is enabling state investigators to compromise federal prosecutions. Okay, so bringing this all back to Donald Trump, so we've got... Um, of course, there are multiple investigations. There are some investigations of, of, <laughs> of Trump. There's some of the Trump organization. Trump There's some of the Trump campaign. Um, so uh, you mentioned that the that a corporation can't uh, can't plead the fifth. So the Trump organization can't plead the fifth. Correct. And. Um, so that's going to come up probably, or I guess it has come up in New York, but that's a civil investigation. Um, so <laughs> it's really complicated, um, you know, to begin with. So, so a corporation. So normally we've said yes, you can you can take the fifth in a in a civil investigation, or but that can be used as an inference against you. Here they can't take the fifth in the first place. Well, what you're seeing is. This seemingly technical rule of 
criminal procedure for reasons we have identified is going to ramify into civil lawsuits, whether brought by private litigants or by the government, can ramify into grand jury investigations, can ramify into civil depositions even before there's a civil lawsuit, can ramify into congressional oversight investigations, state legislative oversight investigations, because you have to be able to take the fifth in some shape or form outside a criminal case in order to protect Fifth Amendment values within the criminal case, this seemingly technical rule is going to actually play out in all sorts of directions. And once we recognize that you're allowed to take the fifth in all sorts of situations outside a criminal case in order to protect Fifth Amendment values inside a possible future criminal prosecution, once we recognize that, The question becomes, what kind of immunity do we have to offer you outside the criminal case to force you to talk outside the criminal case? Because it can't be, uh, uh, it won't work if um, we can't force you to talk in civil depositions, in civil litigation, uh, whether brought by a private party or by the government, in congressional investigations, in grand juries, in state legislative investigations. So it can't be the case that you can just clam up everywhere with no consequences, okay? So the key then is going to be in order to open up the clam, to force you to talk in all these other situations, what kind of immunity do we need to promise you? And this is not well understood by everyone, but the key to the the whole equation is what kind of immunity do we have to give you outside of a criminal case in order to force you to, to talk outside of a criminal case? And the three possibilities are the narrowest of all, People versus Kelly, just testimonial immunity is sometimes called use immunity. That's what I favor. Second one, use plus fruits. That's castigar immunity. That's too broad because we're excluding too much. Reliable fruits. Broadest possibility of all councilmen, you just can't have a criminal case ever. Transactional immunity for anything related to something where someone was forced to talk in a civil case, in a grand jury, in a congressional investigation, in a civil deposition, in a state legislative investigation. As we were thinking about this, you know, you're explaining to me, and and I'm thinking, you know, paradigmatically, you've got a a murderer, and, you know, he he takes the fifth. Okay, so you, you, you question him outside of court, and you say, okay, we immunize you so that your words won't be used against you in court. Did you do it? Yes. Okay, that can't be used against you. But, um, and then where's the gun? So now you have to answer. Yes. And now they go find the gun. Yes. And now the gun can be used against you. With your fingerprints on it and your DNA on it. Yes, yes, yes. So Schmerber, you see, if we can take your blood why can't we subpoena you and saying, please hand over any bloody knives that you might have or know of? <laughs> okay, and your lawyer, see, you're not going to want to do this, but your lawyer is an officer of the court and your lawyer is going to have to cooperate or else be disbarred. 
Okay, well, speaking of lawyers, Donald Trump's lawyers have been in the news uh, for statements they've made, either under oath or affidavit or whatever, about the um, the papers at Mar-a-Lago. So does that have implications, uh, or, or are there implications for that in uh, what we've been discussing? Absolutely. So, for example, if lawyers are involved um, in responding to a subpoena, uh, and they are not truthful, that can have all sorts of legal consequences. Even if they're not technically under oath in a courtroom, if you make false statements to the government, as we've talked about before, 18 U.S.C. 1001, oh, that's a big problem. More generally, lawyers can be charged with obstruction of justice if, if they make affirmatively false representations to the judicial system or to investigators in various situations. So now you're seeing, once again, how if you make a change anywhere in the system, it has implications more broadly in this situation. We're seeing how the role of lawyers would actually change very importantly if we had a different set of rules about Fifth Amendment immunity and what it means to take the Fifth Amendment outside the criminal case. If we had a narrower view of what needs to be excluded in the criminal case, oh my gosh, that's going to have huge implications for criminal defense lawyers. You know, it it seems to me that this is in some ways a little more problematic than some of the other changes you've been talking about, because before you were saying, well, you know, there's this, uh, the the law wants to encourage um, truth, you know, and and uh, reliable testimony, you know, and things like that, and therefore, um, it's okay to admit the fruits of statements that are made outside of court because what you're winding up with is more reliable information, and you're having less of the unreliable information, like witnessing. Okay, so so that even though, you know, from the guilty person's point of view, you're making his life worse in some ways you're not making anything worse as far as the basic uh, premises you know, behind criminal procedure, um, which is that we want to encourage finding of the truth, we want to protect the innocent, um, and so forth. Okay, but here we have lawyer-client privilege, and that exists to encourage open discussion between lawyer and client. Okay, and then we, so that's one value, and then we also have this value that you're talking about about finding the truth. So as you make this change that would make lawyers uh, that, that encourage people to essentially lie, and therefore you're putting a greater responsibility on on lawyers to to not let that happen. That's interfering with open uh, communication between lawyer and client. So it's not quite as cut and dry in terms of benefiting the underlying principles and not hurting the underlying principles. And we're already there in existing judicial doctrine, and we have to be. So let me just say just a little bit about clients and their lawyers. And this takes us very much to Donald Trump and Trump world and his relationship with his lawyers. And just pro tip out there for anyone thinking of ever being Donald Trump's lawyer, oh, Actually, if you just look at the data, a lot of Donald Trump's lawyers have gone to the pokey or have been disbarred just saying, you know, this is uh, you're assuming a pretty big risk. So that was a jokey way of putting it. But here's the point. Lawyers are 
agents of clients, of parties, but they are also and always officers of the court. And there are tensions already in existing doctrine between those two visions of lawyers. So, for example, if the client tells you everything and asks, and you're the lawyer, for you're, you're allowed to basically say, okay, what you did in the past was wrong. You have to stop doing it. I won't rat you out. I can't rat you out in general for what you've told me. You've confessed all your crimes to me, and I, I, can't, I'm not, I can't repeat that in an in, in open court or even behind closed doors to the authorities without your permission. And I can absolutely defend you in all sorts of ways, but my job as a lawyer is actually to tell you to stop doing that and get you on a, a path of compliance with the law, whether you're an individual or a corporation. I can't help you cover up the crime. I can defend you in certain ways, but I can't help you cover up the crime because if I do, I myself am guilty of a crime of obstruction of justice and lawyer-client privilege will not apply because of a thing called the crime-fraud exception to lawyer-client confidentiality. I can't help you plan new crimes. And if, and if I do help you plan new crimes, I'm no longer actually properly your legal counsel. I've become your consigliere, and I'm going to go to prison. So even today, if you tell me some things, I, as a lawyer, that's going to limit what I can do and can't do. Here's another thing that I can't do as a lawyer today because I'm an officer of the court. I can't knowingly present falsehoods to the court. So if you tell me... It happened a certain way. If you want to take the stand, you're allowed to. But if you get on the stand and then start saying, oh, it happened a very different way, I can't let you do that. If I know you're going to lie on the stand, I'm not allowed to put you on the stand. And if you start lying on the stand in ways that I hadn't anticipated, I have to actually stop my cooperation with you in various technical ways. Um, I won't go into all the details, but today, already in existing law, it is not the case that you can. your lawyer is your partner in crime. And Donald Trump often thinks of his lawyers as his partners in crime, and the lawyers who don't draw the line get disbarred, get prosecuted. And Trump's lawyers, and some of them, have indeed been disbarred and been prosecuted. My rules about self-incrimination immunity and narrowing them will move that line in all sorts of interesting ways, but we already have that line in the relationship between lawyers and clients. Because to repeat, lawyers are both agents of clients in whom clients can give all sorts of secret information, trusting that the lawyer will keep that in confidence. So that's one part of the lawyer-client relationship. But the other part is Actually, there are certain things that lawyers can't do because you've told them everything. Yes, the line is being moved in interesting ways, as you say. Um, currently, you have a situation where sometimes lawyers, I believe, will, will not ask a client, you know, did you do it? Or there's certain things they won't ask them because they, they don't want to know it because if they do know it, then they won't be able to defend them in, in a certain way for the reasons that you said. But under the new system that you're discussing, well, the lawyer won't ask, but the prosecutor will, 
when the, when the prosecutor you know pulls the guy into the grand jury and he has to answer, immunizes him with testimonial immunity, and now he he asks him this question. Well, now he has to answer it. So now the lawyer can't avoid this knowledge that he currently can avoid uh, in the interest of trying to uh, represent his client effectively. So this is going to change the way it seems to me. I don't correct me if I'm wrong. But this approach that lawyers take to their clients may radically change under this uh, new system. I think it will change very dramatically. There are lawyers today who play see no evil, don't tell me certain things because it will limit the kinds of defenses I can permissibly offer to the court, to the judge and the jury in the trial itself. Very famous scene in Anatomy of a Murder. Jimmy Stewart, where he kind of coaches his client by saying, listen, before you tell me what happened, let me just tell you, because I'm a lawyer, if it happened this way, mm-hmm. oh, I can defend you, you know, we've got a good defense. If it happened that way, oh, we've got no defense. Now that I've told you that, tell me how it, it, quote, really, unquote, happened. Here's another way of putting it. In a previous episode, we talked about how a search with a warrant in some ways, was more intrusive than a subpoena because a subpoena allows the target to find whatever it is that the government is looking for and just hand it over to the government without the government breaking in and rifling through all the other papers and effects in someone's house. Those, of course, are Fourth Amendment words, papers, effects, house. So a search with a warrant involves a kind of um, intrusion and the government pawing through everything to find X, Y, and Z, which is what it's looking for. Whereas a subpoena that just says hand over X, Y, and Z is less intrusive. And X, Y, and Z could be the gun you know, with, a, with fingerprints or something in a Mars world, any bloody knives that you might happen to have. Now, of course, subpoenas, I say, are less intrusive, they are also often incidents that involve lawyers as certifying compliance with the subpoena. In a search conducted pursuant to a warrant, there may not be a a lawyer involved, maybe on the government side, yeah, but not on the the search target side. But in the subpoena, the, the target of the subpoena may have a lawyer certify compliance with the subpoena. Yes, I've done a diligent investigation and I certify that my client has indeed handed over everything in the subpoena. Well, that's exactly what Trump's lawyers certified. And now, according to news reports, they're in trouble because months ago they said, we certify that Trump has handed over everything you asked for. And apparently, and and we've done a diligent search. Apparently that's not true. And they may be on the hook for obstruction of justice. They may be on the hook for false statements to federal officials. And in a Mars world, if you change Fifth Amendment immunity doctrine, we're going to have more of those situations. I think just to be clear, I I think they didn't necessarily respond to a subpoena, right? They responded to a a request. Isn't that right? I think you're right. It wasn't a formal subpoena, Mm -hmm. but just to repeat. um, They still certified There are all sorts of situations where you don't have to talk to the government, but if you choose to and you end up lying, that's a violation of the False Statements Act. Maybe you don't have to talk to them at all, but if you tell them things that are untrue, that's obstruction of justice. 
or it so, can be. So it's interesting how this uh, this change, you know, has this ramification that might be somewhat in, unanticipated. That that changing Fifth Amendment uh, rules somehow impacts on lawyer-client privilege in ways. So that that's not something that's intuitive, but there it is. So these things are actually connected in way, unanticipated ways, and I suppose that goes along with your notion of holism in the Constitution, holism in criminal procedure, you know, the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth uh, Amendments are related, and the Bill of Rights is, as a Constitution. So all of, thing, all of these things are together in, in various systematic ways. It is indeed a system. So, yes, you're seeing this is, this is a radically different way of thinking about standard operating procedure, and yet, for all its seeming radicalness, there are small, tiny, seemingly small little tweaks of existing doctrine that could get me to this world. Four different pathways that can get me to a completely different system. Each one just and, and this is this is often what's interesting about law. You you just you know pull a thread here or there and, and if it's the right thread, oh you change the entire structure of the fabric. You know, a, a sleeve falls off um, that you don't that you that you want to fall off. So, four different ways I think that doctrine could easily move to the Amar system. And what are they? I'll tell you next week. Okay. And uh, audience, in order to listen next week, you have to pass the test for this week, which is to tell three people about our podcast. And as a reward, you'll also hear more about my favorite guy, Abraham Lincoln.